Happy Sabbath. The re reason I bring these folks is because I'm never prepared like I should be. So I don't know what I'll, exactly what I'll need. So that way I have something here so I can refer to. I like a, a sunny, cold winter day. And praise God for such a nice sunny day on the Sabbath. And uh, welcome to each one of you here. Um, it's nice to see all of you and to be with you today. We have much to praise our Lord for. There are many who have lived in this world that wished, who do not now live in this world, who wish they would be alive, had been alive at this time. Brothers and sisters, we are near the end. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's stunning. It's breathtaking as we see events transpiring around us, um, one after another with a rapidity that's just more than the mind can wrap itself around. Uh, we are there. Uh, you know, a friend of mine was on the phone. Uh, she had called up and asked for prayer, and um, she quoted to me a verse that uh, kind of stuck in my mind. She said, you know, she said, uh, she quoted from Proverbs. It says, man that is in honor and understandeth not. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. And she pointed out the fact that we as Seventh-day Adventists are in a position of honor. But, you know, if we don't understand and comprehend the privilege that we have, we will be like the beasts that perish. We must have the right information. We must have the truth. And God has given us that truth. And so may the Lord help us today during this few minutes here in the pulpit and uh, church service and certainly in the days to come to absorb all the light that heaven would give us because we must have it. Uh, uh, who is sufficient for these things? As the Apostle Paul said. I'd like to briefly have a prayer, and then we're going to open the Bible again and take a look at uh, the book of uh, Revelation and Genesis. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that the Spirit of God will be with us. We pray that we will be guided by Thee and directed by Thee. We pray for strength. We pray for wisdom. And I pray, Lord, that our attention will be fixed upon Christ as never before. Then we will see that the truths of the word of God are, are the very things that we need. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be in this place. We pray that we will be transformed. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins. And I ask for each of us that we will, by your grace, gain the victory and put away all sin. We ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Amen. Last time I was here, we talked a little bit about the 144,000 and the sons of Jacob, and I would like to continue on with the um, same subject um, today. Um, if you would go to the book of Revelation um, briefly. In the book of Revelation, there are two chapters that specifically... Uh, present the group, the 144,000. One is Revelation chapter 7 in the sealing of the 144,000, and then the other one is Revelation chapter 14. The 144,000 are pictured in heaven on Mount Zion with, with, with the Lamb. In, I'm in Revelation chapter 14. And 
I'm looking here at verse 4. Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, talking about the 144,000. It says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. The fact that they were redeemed from among men means that they were redeemed from among the living. All who are redeemed will be redeemed from among men in a certain sense, but the statement here is implying the fact that they were redeemed from among the living. So this group is a group that will be translated to heaven uh, when Jesus comes again. There's only two other people that this, uh, has a, this high privilege has occurred to, and that was Elijah, who was translated uh, after his great victory on uh, Mount Carmel, and then Enoch, who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, who walked with God for 300 years. But God is now, right now, brothers and sisters, God is right now developing that group. And Jacob's 12 sons are a prototype of the 144,000. Not only are Jacob's 12 sons a prototype of the 144,000, they are a prototype of all the body of the redeemed because out of that, those 12 sons of Jacob, you have the 12 types of all the main categories of human beings. And as it says in Revelation chapter 21, it says that there will be one of the name of the 12 tribes on the gates of the city. So when we enter the city, we will either enter through the, the gate of Gad or Judah or Reuben or Levi or Issachar, one of those 12. So in the study of their life experience, we can see what God did for humanity. It's a very exciting study. But right now, brothers and sisters, it's absolutely amazing what's going on. God is developing the 144,000 right now. Um, <clears throat> also in heaven... We are told Revelation chapter 14, it says, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Do you realize that ever since 1844 that the, that heaven, the heavenly intelligences have been examining one by one all the millions who have professed the name of Christ down through the ages of this earth's history and his names come up, they are either exonerated and given a place in the eternal kingdom or as names come up, they are either accepted or rejected. Uh, this is, uh, and you know, the Lord doesn't send us a, a notice in the mail and say, you know, uh, January 17, your name's coming up in judgment in the heavenly sanctuary. Nope. He sent us, he sent us a notice right here in his word. We know ever since 1844, the judgment has been going on in heaven. And when that's done, the 144,000 will be uh, prepared for the last final conflict. We are there, brothers and sisters. Every person that you and I see in this room right now and every person that's around us in this city in Cleveland, their eternal destiny will soon be decided. This is breathtaking. It's more than the human mind can comprehend. And uh, may God help us to weed all vanity, all unnecessary things out of our lives. We have no time to waste with anything at all. By the way, one of the subjects that's very important for us these last days for two reasons. One is, and that is the subject of health, we must become experts, as it were, on the subject of health. Number one, because our health impacts our own spiritual life and our own daily function. Number two, we are told that, that the medical missionary work is one of the two works that will continue to the end of time. The ministry, as we know it, will not continue to the end of time. So we need to become more and more knowledgeable and aware on the subject of health. Um, but that's, um, that's another subject. We need to be eating a good, simple diet. 
Uh, we need to be getting away from meat and, and animal products, brothers and sisters. It's just time. Uh, the animal world is diseased. And um, we need to be living on a simple diet, and we need to be getting physical exercise. We need to be doing everything we can to promote clean, a clean body, a clean bloodstream, and so forth. Um, my, my wife and I have had recently two friends that have come down with cancer. Uh, one man was diagnosed with fourth-stage uh, cancer. He's really battling it. And then we have a friend um, who uh, has meant, been very dear to me, and he's only five years older than I am. The doctor said, you've got 90 days. And he's going down quite fast. He came up with a brain tumor, large brain tumor in the, in the head. Um, but uh, so my, my wife has become more interested in the subject of health. And then plus we have a, a, a niece who uh, is around 20, I think. Um, she recently had her thyroid taken out uh, because of cancer. Uh, brothers and sisters, I would really encourage you to look up the natural things before you let the doctors dive at your body. Um, because there is a way to get well naturally. Um, my wife looked up on YouTube. There's a, a man called Chris Beats Cancer, and uh, he has a lot of good information. If you look up the Gerson Clinic, Charlotte Gerson, you'll get a lot of very good information there. Uh, so the, these are some very good sources. But we need to get oxygen in our body by exercise. We need to get a good diet. Um, the, you know, the book of Daniel was written for the last days. Daniel... Uh, the, not only the prophecies, but the stories. And Daniel drank water, and Daniel ate pulse. And pulse means things that are grown in the garden. In other words, Daniel ate a plant-based diet, uh, at least during his schooling. And, um, um, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar pitched uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, he didn't get the weakest men in his army. He got the strongest men in his army. And we're told in the book Prophets and Kings that Daniel and his three friends were superior not only mentally but physically in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar knew he better get some pretty tough guys to get those guys in the furnace. Um, but another, the point is, is that they were men who were physically active. They ate a good diet. And this is a, a, a very important area here. Uh, there are many people running around with sickness, diabetes, headaches, and all that kind of thing. Um, but uh, get, get as knowledgeable as you can on that subject. Now, Revelation 14 here describes a group of people that God is preparing now at this time to be translated. By the way, brothers and sisters, you and I, if we are, if I may say it this way, if we are wise, we will be preparing not only for translation, but we will also be preparing for the other alternate. We will be preparing for martyrdom. We don't know if the Lord's going to translate us or not. That's his will. It's his decision. I, we are told, we are told, though, in the spirit of prophecy that we should strive with all the power that God has given us to be among the 144,000. Uh, obviously, the Lord would have developed this group before, but uh, just, he just hadn't quite had the cooperation. I'm convinced he's getting the cooperation now, and I'm convinced that group is being developed, and we are told that we should strive with all the power that God has given us to be among the 144,000. Certainly, we should also be ready. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the picture of the, the oxen, and on one side of the picture is the, the plowed field with, with, with the furrows and the plow, and on the other side of the picture is the altar. And on the inscription on the picture, it says, ready for either. In other words, the oxen is either ready for service to plow the field or he's ready to be sacrificed. And this is the posture that we as Christians must be in. You know, Martin Luther said, he who proclaims Christ to the world must be ready for death at any moment. We don't know what the option is, but we must be ready by the grace of God for um, what, whatever the Lord 
will uh, has planned for us. Now, <clears throat> uh, I'm reading here from <clears throat> 7a of the commentary. It's also uh, 7, uh, 7 BC, page 978. It says this, The 14th chapter of Revelation is a chapter of the deepest interest. The 14th chapter of Revelation is a chapter of the deepest interest. That would include the three angels' messages. That would include the subsequent information after that. And that would also include the the description of the 144,000. The 14th chapter of Revelation is a chapter of the deepest interest. This scripture will soon be understood in all its bearings. And the messages given to John the Revelator will be repeated with distinct utterance. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And the third angel, if any man worship the beast in his image, the same shall receive the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I would remind you today, brothers and sisters, you already well know this, but this, the seventh day Sabbath is the Sabbath of God's divine law. The Sunday Sabbath is a false Sabbath. The Sabbath was picked from the days of creation and after God had completed his work and created man and provided everything needed for him and for his sustenance and for his living, after six days were accomplished, God says, now I'm going to give the seventh day, which is the sign of his creative power. If you worship God, well, you can't uh, correctly, but if you try and worship God on the first day of the week, you pick the day of the week where there was the least, in the creation week, you pick the day of the week where there was the most confusion and the least possibility of life. And isn't that fitting for Babylon's Sabbath? Babylon means confusion. Isn't that right? It's a false Sabbath, brothers and sisters. And our eternal destiny will, will hinge upon our loyalty to Christ and his Sabbath, certainly other truths that are involved. The 14th chapter of Revelation is a chapter of the deepest interest. This scripture will soon be understood in all its bearings, and the messages given to John, the revelator, will be repeated with distinct utterance. Uh, And then a quote briefly right after that. Christ is coming the second time with power unto salvation. Christ is coming the second time with power unto salvation to prepare human beings for this event. To prepare human beings for this event. He has sent the first second, and third angel's message. These messages, excuse me, these angels represent, these angels represent those who receive the truth and with power open the gospel to the world. These angels represent those who receive the truth and with power open the gospel to the world. Very exciting, isn't it? Wow. I long to be 
close to the throne of God, don't you? There is no better place in all the universe than to be close to the throne of God. And if we will commune with God here on earth, he will prepare us for that high privilege that we may look upon his face with no dimming veil between and see the Father and see the Son. And when the redeemed get to heaven, we are told in Zephaniah that God himself is going to sing over them with rejoicing. Very exciting, isn't it? I'm going to share, this is off the subject, but I'm going to share this very quickly. <clears throat> and, uh, and then we'll, as time allows, we'll get into our subject here a little bit. I'm reading the book right now of, uh, called Education as part of my devotional time. And I recently read a section in here. By the way, the book is tremendous. But I recently read a section on music and singing. And it talks about how Christ would, would sing often and, and it would help with temptation. It would change the atmosphere where he was at. And great blessings have been received by people with singing. <clears throat> but listen to this statement here. It's on the bottom page 166. It says this. <clears throat> Amidst the deepening shadows of earth's last great crisis. Amidst the deepening shadows of earth's last great crisis. God's light will shine brightest. And the song of hope and trust will be heard in clearest and loftiest strains. That's exciting. Amen. You know, the whole universe is watching this world. You know, coming up here, part of our trip, we were traveling at 70 miles an hour. Well, that's highway speed, right? Do you realize at 70 miles an hour, you're traveling at 102 feet per second? Yeah, figure it out. You are moving at 102 feet per second, traveling 70 miles an hour. You know, if you're traveling the speed of light, you would go around this earth seven times in one second? Uh, you know, there's a lot I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this guess. When we travel back to heaven by the grace of God, we will have to be going faster than the speed of light to get there. Because we're going to get there in one week. And it's the, the, the distance across the opening of the mouth of Orion is many, many thousands of light years across, just the opening to the mouth of Orion. The universe out there is absolutely immense and it's filled with unfallen beings who are watching this earth's history. Isn't that amazing? Um, listen to this. There's two statements like this in the Conflict of the Ages series. I'm going to read you one from the book Desire of Ages. In the book Desire of Ages on page 679, it says that when Jesus died on the cross and cried out, it is finished, all heaven would triumph. His ear caught the distant music and the shouts of victory in the heavenly courts. He knew that the knell of Satan's empire would then be sounded 
And the name of Christ would be heralded from world to world throughout the universe. When Christ died on the cross and he cried out, he died a pure sacrifice. He said it is finished. His name was heralded from world to world throughout the entire universe. There is power in the name of Jesus because he has died for this, the human race. He has made certain the victory of all who would cling to the cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must cling to the cross of Christ. This is our hope. This is our power. As the song has said, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Or it's a poem. doesn't matter. Inspiration uses the words. In my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. When we are fighting with the powers of darkness, when we are fighting with our own human carnal nature, we may cling to the cross of Christ. When Paul came, he said to the Corinthians, he says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Their faith should not stay in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God is in the cross of Christ. Hold on to the promise of his word that Jesus died for you and he will help you through whatever challenges that you have. Brothers and sisters, as we look at the life of Jacob's sons, we are looking at a group of men, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, are a prototype of the uh, all of the human family, especially the, and also of the 144,000. But I would remind you, as we look at these men in their lives and see the sins that they committed, do you realize that, yes, they had light. They had a lot of light. They knew about Adam and Eve. They knew about Enoch. They knew about Abraham, their father. They knew about Jacob and his dream. They They had a lot of light. But they did not have the blaze and concentration of light that you and I now have. Do you realize how privileged we are to live down here now at the end of a 6,000 year period and we have all this, all these accumulated stories and all this accumulated light that we have the privilege of learning from. And certainly the Lord has lavished on this last generation uh, many, many great blessings. But I believe that these blessings are needed because we are about to plunge into the thick of the battle. Now, when you read about uh, Jacob's sons, it was quite a batch. Um, Jacob committed a very grievous sin when he went by deception to Isaac to gain the birthright. God had promised him the birthright. But he went to help, supposedly help God out. He did. He disobeyed the commandments and he deceived his father. And uh, after that, his life was one long series of problems. Um, Jacob never saw his mother again. He had to suffer the wrath of his brother Esau. Excuse me, Esau, for many many years. He went and met uh, back in those days. You could marry, I guess, a little closer relative, and he met, you know, his. Relative Rachel, and he was smitten by her, and her father said, "Yeah, you can have her. Seven years. You work seven years, and then you can have her." Jacob said, "Good deal. I'll do it." <clears throat> and then they pulled one over on him, and he woke up the morning after the wedding and found out it was not Rachel, but that it was Leah. Can you imagine the? Wow, 
Laban said, ah, you know what? You can't marry off the younger girl first. Give me seven more years. You can have Rachel too. And then you have all these problems. Uh, Rachel didn't have babies. Leah had babies. And Rachel got a little desperate and she said, well, take my midwife, Billa. So Jacob got a third wife out of that. And then Leah wasn't having babies. She said, well, take my midwife, Zilpah. And so Jacob got a fourth wife out of that. Can you imagine having uh, uh, family worship with four wives? And uh, two of them are handmaids. Can you imagine the, that when the handmaids started having babies and the, the Rachel or Leah said to their handmaid, hey, I need this job done. They said, hey, I got my own work. Now. Yeah, I mean, the family was not a nice place to be. Um, polygamy is a mess, brothers and sisters. And then plus on top of that, he lost, you know the story, he lost Joseph. Uh, and for 20 years, he thought his son was dead. Just thing after thing after thing and when when Joseph or excuse me when Jacob uh, finally the thing got all pretty well figured out and he was in Egypt and he was brought before Pharaoh Joseph took him to meet Pharaoh he said to Pharaoh at 130 years old he said few and evil had the days of the years of my life been he'd really been down a tough road because of his sins Every sin comes back around to um, do its work and its penalty. I'm going to take a look here at a few of Jacob's sons. There's, well, 12, really. Um, and we're only going to look at just a few of them here in, in the time that we have, but I think you'll find it very interesting. I want to read a statement here that I find very interesting. This is on Bible biographies. It talks about Jacob and his sons and so forth in the book Education. It's page 146. It says this, No truth does the Bible more clearly teach than what we do is the result of what we are. You got that, didn't you? I'll read it again. No truth does the Bible more clearly teach than what we do is the result of what we are. To a great degree, the experiences of life are the fruition of our own thoughts and deeds. Hear, O heaven, it's quoting Jeremiah. Behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts. And then education comments again. Terrible is this truth, and deeply should it be impressed. Every deed reacts upon the doer. Terrible is this truth, and deeply should it be impressed. Every deed reacts upon the doer. Now, the inspiration points out the fact that um, Jacob had responsibility for the way his son, at least some responsibility for the way his sons were because the evil in his nature cropped out in his boys. 
But listen to this statement now. This is page 148. In fact, I um, will read you a little bit just before that. This is talking about after he was transformed by the night of wrestling with the angel. It says, He had gained not merely deliverance from his outraged brother, but deliverance from himself. The power of evil in his own nature was broken. His character was transformed. Now listen to this. This is so good. This is so good. Look, you and I have zero power to change our past history. The fact. We can't do it. But watch what the grace... This describes what the grace of God will do with our past history if we will cooperate with God and submit to his power. It's absolutely tremendous. Education, page 148. God does not annul his laws. In other words, he doesn't set them aside. God does not annul his laws. The work of sin he does not undo, but he transforms through his grace, the curse works out a blessing. Through his Grace, the curse, works out a blessing. Now, Reuben was the firstborn. The firstborn normally got a double portion of the wealth. He was also entrusted with being the uh, progenitor of the Messiah. And he was also entrusted with the priesthood of the family. Reuben lost all those because of his sin. Uh, Reuben, at one point, whatever the circumstances were that led to it, but he slept with Jacob's concubine, or I guess you'd call her concubine. Well, anyway, Billa, who was Rachel's wife. And because of that sin... Um, Reuben lost the birthright blessing and the double portion of wealth and being the progenitor of the Messiah. Joseph got the double blessing of wealth. Judah got the privilege of being progenitor of the Messiah. And Levi ended up with the priesthood in Israel. Okay. By the way, when Moses pronounced his last parting blessings on the tribe he said let Reuben live and not die and Reuben's names you know there are there are two names that are not retained in the last 12 you realize that Ephraim and Dan are dropped from the list but Reuben's name is retained in the eternal list of the twelve redeemed, or of the twelve tribes of the redeemed. In, uh, I believe it's in Judges chapter 5, it tells about the tribe of Reuben when they were in, um, in a time of great battle and perplexity. It says, amongst the people of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. Great searchings of heart. 
Evidently, Reuben and also his descendants, even though they had weaknesses in their character, they were people who submitted to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. They had great searchings of heart, and they were led to repentance, and God could still redeem them. Now, when you read the, the, the dying blessing of Jacob upon his sons, we're told in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, he loved them all to the last He forgave them all. But when you read the the dying blessing of Jacob on his sons, the spirit of inspiration came upon him. There were many blessings pronounced, but there were also curses pronounced because of what they had done in their past lives. Simeon and Levi. um, Well, we'll get into that here in just a moment. In fact, let's talk about Levi just a little bit. We touched on Reuben. Levi was the third son of Leah. And the word Levi means joined. Means joined. Uh, You know, when you've got four women and one man, there's quite a contest there. And she named Levi because she says, Now will my husband be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Well, Levi and Simeon both turned out to be very cruel men. And the, the, the single incident in their life that reveals that fact is that you have 12 boys and they had one sister. Now, when you have 12 boys and one sister, she's a prize in the family, right? Her name was Dinah. She was Leah's daughter. She, you better believe those boys were... <clears throat> I remember my uncle told me he drove all the way from Ohio to uh, uh, Kansas to check out that man who was going to marry his sister. You know, a good brother is going to be watching out for his sister. Well, Dinah went out to uh, uh, see the daughters of the land, it says in the book of Genesis. And there was a, a Shechemite prince who saw her and he was smitten. And he did what you should not do. He lay with her before marriage. And the Bible says he loved her, he spake kindly to her, and the Shechemites came to Joseph's, uh, or Jacob's sons, and they said, look, we want, to, you know, we want your daughter, and we'll, you know, we'll make peace, and we'll get along. And Simeon and Levi said, hey, that's fine. They said, but in order to be part of our, our, our group, they said, you must be circumcised. So all your males must be circumcised. Well, evidently, that puts a man on a commission, and when all the males were circumcised, Simeon and Levi went in and slaughtered the whole village. It was just, Jacob was just, I mean, so you have this, you know, you have his daughters defiled, then you have this even worse thing, you might say, whatever. But this whole village was, so Simeon and Levi were very, very evil, evil men. It is believed that Simeon and Levi, Simeon especially, were the, the main instigators in selling Joseph off to slavery. They were cruel, they were cruel men. But when the tribe of Levi was at Mount Sinai and there was the apostasy over the golden calf and the worshiping of the image, and Moses came down off the mountain and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Levi, the tribe of Levi in its entirety stepped forward and they vindicated the cause of God at that time 
And as a result of that, they were entrusted with the priesthood and the curse was turned into a blessing. Now, in the um, comments here, I have a wonderful book. It's called The Cross and Its Shadow. Cross and Its Shadow by Stephen Haskell. It says this. These are such good comments. It says, character is formed. Formed. That means built up. Character is formed or built up by the way individuals meet the common events of everyday life. So the character is built by the repetition of habits, thoughts. The character is built up by the way we meet everyday life, but it is tested by the way we meet the crisis of life. You see, brothers and sisters, there's a time coming in the near future when you and I are going to be the objects of persecution because of our loyalty to Jehovah and because of our loyalty to God's Sabbath and whatever else. We will be the objects of persecution. We will. Jesus was persecuted. We will be persecuted. And at that time, all superficial characters who have professed Christ but have not genuinely been following Christ, they will not survive that test. And that is why, by the grace of God now, we need the transformation. Over on the next page, he says, In a crisis, decisions are made quickly. In a crisis, decisions are made quickly. Many fail at such times because they do not have independent Christian characters. They are in the habit of following the leadings of those in whom they have confidence. They are in the habit of following the leadings of those in whom they have confidence, and they have no strength in themselves. He who would always prove true in the crisis of life must have a clear connection with the God of heaven and must fear God more than man. You see that? Do you realize if we place dependence on humans, it doesn't matter who they are in any wrong way? I mean, there's a legitimate dependence on one another. Okay. But if we have a wrong dependence on human beings, do you realize that that is idolatry? That's dependence on man instead of on God. And if we are in the habit of trusting in man for spiritual strength, And spiritual blessings and spiritual guidance, if we are in the habit of trusting in man, when the great crisis of life comes, we will not be able to stand. This is why we must develop the habit of of, uh, trust, trust in God now. Um, I think I talked to you last time a little bit about Judah. He was a wonderful character. Uh, Not without faults, though. Serious faults. But... He, he was given the birthright, or excuse me, he was given the blessing of being the progenitor of the Messiah, of the birth uh, in that sense. Um, let me read to you just a little bit out Stephen Haskell's book here. The record states that it's from the Bible that Judah the fourth son prevailed above his brethren and of him came the chief ruler. That's found in First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 2. And of him came the chief ruler. If you look in the margin there, it says the chief prince. In other words, of, Ru- of Judah came the, the Messiah. <clears throat> 
How did Judah prevail above his brethren and thus inherit the spiritual birthright? This is a subject worthy of careful study by everyone who desires a part in the great spiritual birthright by which we may today become heirs of of the eternal inheritance. We have no record of Judah's ever prevailing over his brethren by force of arms. In other words, he didn't prevail over his brethren by force of arms, but a careful study of the lives of the 12 sons of Jacob reveals the fact that Judah was a leader. When he offered to stand for surety for Benjamin, Jacob consented to let Benjamin go into Egypt, although Reuben's offer had been refused. Remember when the the famine was going on, and Jacob said, look, you've got to go get food. And Reuben said, look, or the men, the son said to Jacob, look, we can't go. That ruler said, no younger brother, no food, don't even come see my face. Jacob said, I can't have that. Uh, Joseph's dead and gone. You're not going to take uh, Benjamin from me too. They said, okay. And then they got real hungry. Jacob said, you got to go. They said, we can't go without Benjamin. Reuben at first had offered, he said, look, he said, if I don't bring Benjamin back, he said, you can slay my two sons. Jacob had no confidence in in Reuben's word. But when Judah stepped in and he said, I myself will be surety for the lad. In other words, I'll put my own life on the line for the lad. And then they went back to Egypt. They said, look, we apologize. We got this extra money here. We're bringing it back. We didn't mean to steal the money. And the steward said, it's fine. And they they were brought into uh, Joseph's... uh, palace and given a meal and Benjamin was given five times as much food as the other brothers they were all set in order and they said wow what's going on here they put us all in chronological order so they were fed and they took off of course they didn't know they were eating with their brother and when the steward came on the boys the second time going home he said why have you stolen the governor's silver cup they said, we haven't stolen the brothers. So he said, yes, you have. Some of you have. Someone of you have. They said, absolutely not. They said, if we have, we'll, you can, we can be bondmen and, you can, and you can, whoever did it, you can kill them. He said, fine, fair enough. So they went down through the sacks, oldest from youngest. And Benjamin's sack got opened. There was the silver cup of the governor. And the, the Bible says the men rent their clothes. They... they uh, they were just in absolute shock. And you can imagine over that 20 years, by the way, brothers and sisters, you know revenge is not a real nice thing. You can imagine over that 20 years the sorrow they saw in their father for 20 years for the murderous act that they committed against Joseph. You know when the Jewish rulers uh, orchestrated the crucifixion of Christ, they weren't so happy with the result after that happened. And you know, when Herodias got the head of John the Baptist on a charger, she did not experience the pleasure she thought she would. Vengeance and retaliation is not for human beings to indulge in. And these brothers, they had all this, and then now they've been found out, and they rent their clothes, they go back to the governor. And he said, look, he said, Joseph said to them, they didn't know it was him, he said, why in the world have you done this? It was Judah who stepped forward. And you read in Genesis 44 a most beautiful appeal from this brother. He said, look, he said, if you take my younger brother, he said, you will bring my father down to the grave in sorrow. He said, take me, take me. You see, brothers and sisters, that's the spirit of Christ. When Jesus was in counsel with the father, he said, look, he said, take me, take me. Jesus was willing to die for you. 
and me. He said, take me instead. Let me die. Let me be. Wow. Jacob, in his dying blessing over Judah, described him as a lion. And out of that tribe came the lion of the tribe of, of Judah. It would have been as easy to overcome a lion as it would be to overcome Judah or someone who had a character like Judah. God transformed that man, and he made him what he should be. I'm just going to hurry on up here a little bit. The next uh, tribe I'd like to talk to you a little bit about is the name of Gad. And um, Gad was uh, one a son of one of the two um, maids. Um, and I'm not sure which one. It was either Billa or Zilpah. But there was evidently four children that came from the two maids. Leah had six. Zilpah had two. Billa had two. And Rachel had two. Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Gad was one of the wives uh, or the concubines' children. I want to read you something here in Genesis 37. This is verse 2. It says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Billah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Okay, so Joseph at this time was with evidently Billah and Zilpah's sons, his father's wives. He was with them, feeding flocks, okay? And look at the rest of verse 2. It says, And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. They must have been bad boys too. And Joseph went home and said, Dad, look, whatever they were doing. Now when, when, when Jacob died and he pronounced under the inspiration of the Spirit of God a blessing over the twelve sons, he said this, Gad, a troop shall overcome him. A troop shall overcome him. In other words, he will be defeated. But he shall overcome at last. Now let me read to you Stephen Haskell's comment. Gad may be taken as a type of the backslider who is overcome by a troop of temptations, but awakens to his danger and in the strength given him from God, overcomes at last and enters the pearly gates of the New Jerusalem, rejoicing in the Lord. Then he tells about the Gadites in uh, First Chronicles when they were in battle with their enemies. He says the secret of the Gadites being victorious over their enemies is given in the account of one of the, the, their great battles. It says this from First Chronicles 5.20. They cried to God in the battle and he was entreated of them because they put their trust in him. They cried to God in the battle and he was entreated of him because they put their trust in him. You know what? I don't know your hearts. But if there is someone in this place of worship today that is a backslider take heart cry to God and he will be entreated of you and he will forgive you of your sins 
You know what God said to the backsliding people in the book of Hosea? He said, I'm married to you. He says, return unto me. It's beautiful. The Lord requires but one thing of the backslider, only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to heal us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hear the pleading with the backslider, return ye backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. That's taken from Hosea 14. I will heal their backslidings. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away. Brothers and sisters, you know when God's people walk into the pearly gates, do you think he's going to have, should I even say this? I think I can, but do you think he's going to have a scowl for some of the worst people, the worst ex-sinners that come in? Absolutely not. You know why? Because the blood of Christ has washed away their sins. Yeah. And uh, God says, I will love them freely and I will... Mine anger is turned away from them. I want to look here at one more of the tribe names. And that one is Naphtali. When Jacob pronounced his dying blessing on the sons, he said of Naphtali, he said he is like a hind let loose. A hind is a female deer. And a female deer is known to be timid and they are known to run very quickly and run very fast. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. It also says here, he says, Naphtali has a precious gift that everyone may covet. He giveth goodly words. In other words, he's a, an encourager. He gives goodly words. In uh, Leslie Harding's book called The Conquerors. By the way, his book on the conquerors and Stephen Haskell's book, The Cross and the Shadow, are tremendous books on the 12 tribes. But in Leslie Harding's book, he refers to Naphtali as a bookworm. In other words, he was constantly feeding his mind with good thoughts and with the word of God. And because of that, he had good words to share with the people. Even though Naphtali was described as a deer that could run quickly... It was not a tribe that was timid in battle. Let no one think, and this is a comment that he observes from uh, Judges chapter 5. He says, let no one think that because Naphtali spoke goodly words that he represented a light, unstable character. For in the great typical battle of Megiddo, now do you realize what he's saying here when he says in the great typical battle of Megiddo? There was a battle of Megiddo in the book of Judges, which is typical of the final controversy in the battle of Armageddon that God's people will be plunged into at the end of time. That's why these Old Testament types have very meaningful information for us as we enter the final stages of the great controversy. God's people enter the battle of Armageddon soon in the, in the end of time. Let no one think that because Naphtali spoke spoke good words that he represented a light, unstable character. For in the great typical battle of Megiddo, Naphtali, he's quoting now from uh, Judges, 
Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. The little translation of the original is very emphatic. They desolated their lives to death. In other words, when they were in the high places of the field, they were willing to be exposed to the enemy and fight the battles of the Lord. By the way, the spiritual battle we now fight is not to be fought with guns and physical ammunition. The spiritual battle that we now fight is to be fought with the word of God and the proclamation of truth. It is not a physical battle that we are, we are to be involved in. We are in a spiritual battle, but the types of the physical reveal to us the type of the spiritual that we will be involved in at the end. The original is very emphatic. They desolated their lives to the death. They were determined to conquer or die. And therefore plunged into the thickest of the battle. You know, you read about John Knox in the book Great Controversy. You know what she says about that man? She says, this true-hearted reformer did not fear the face of man. When he stood before Queen Mary, she says, many other reformers had quailed in her presence. She was a powerful woman. Knox knew at any nod of her head, he could, she could send him off to the martyr's pile. He did not quail before he spoke straight. Read it in the book, Great Controversy. Read it in Wiley's history of the book of the Reformation. That was a man of courage. And he stood for principle and he stood for God. Brothers and sisters, I think we need to understand something in these last days. That as we enter these last days, Satan is going to try to overwhelm God's people with the thought that the right is wrong. Satan's going to try and overwhelm God's people with the thought that the right is wrong. And he's also going to try and overwhelm them with the thought that the right is on the defeated side. And the exact opposite is the case. You know, in the book Great Controversy, in the chapter of the final warning, it quotes the, especially the 144,000 in their last conflict with the powers of the earth. And they, and it's quoted prophetically as them saying to the world, we dare not tamper with God's law, calling one portion essential and another non-essential to gain the favor of the world. Christ has conquered the powers of the earth, and shall we be afraid of a world that is already conquered? We must remember that God's truth, God's government, God's law, and, and the cross of Jesus Christ will be victorious in this battle. In fact, the victory has already been made certain of, but we must now engage in the final battle. We must not be intimidated with the hatred of the world and whatever they try and put upon us. Do you realize that one of the tactics of the enemy is when they are trying to overcome one who, someone who is, who is uh, taking the right position, they try and put shame on you because you think a certain way. They have no... Uh, valid evidence but they try and put shame on you because you're trying to follow a certain way we must not be intimidated they were determined to conquer or die and therefore plunged into the thickest of the battle I'm afraid we're just today we're just too Laodicean and too timid to get out there and even witness like we should. Brothers and sisters, we have got to be changed in our characters. We need to have more love for souls, we need to have more courage and we need to be getting this message out handing out the books, doing what we can to reach souls for the kingdom of God. They must have this information. 
They were determined to conquer or die and therefore plunged into the thickest of the battle. The cause of God was more precious to them than life. And they did not shrink from fighting in the high places of the field, exposed to the fiery darts of the enemy, if the success of the battle demanded it. Like the oxen, between the field and the altar, ready for either, either the field of service or the altar of sacrifice. This is the posture that we must be in. When Alexander the Great was about 16 years old, his father bought a horse. It was a beautiful horse. It was ink black, and it had a white blaze on its uh, head, and its uh, name was called Phallus. And it was a very expensive horse. And his father, uh, King Philip, brought it home, and he you know, was hoping to make good use out of it. But nobody could conquer that horse. It was savage. It was wild. No man could get on it. They tried whipping it, and nothing uh, did any good. And there was a whole group of men out there uh, one time, and Alexander the Great, as a teenager, was there. His father was there, and there was a whole group of men. And Alexander said, I think I can tame that horse. And they, they, they laughed at him. They said, you can't tame that horse. And his father said, well, what if you can't? He said, well, if Phillips, or he said to his father, Philip, he said, he said, I'll pay for him. So Alexander the Great, uh, as a teenager, uh, however old he was, he walked up to the horse, he took hold of him, and he turned this beautiful horse that was really wild, he turned his face into the sun. Because he had observed while watching the goings-on of this horse that the um, horse was afraid of its own shadow. So he turned the face of the horse into the sun, and he patted the horse, and he talked softly to him. And then quick as a flash, he hopped up on his back and he took off running with that horse and ran and ran and ran and ran until the horse became tired. And everybody thought, oh no, this man, this young boy is going to get killed. He rode him till he was tired. He brought him back around to the group and they just went ecstatic. From then, he conquered that horse. And from then on, Buspalus and Alexander the Great were friends. They were very close. When one was one place, the other one would be very close by. They were very close friends. And he would never allow anyone else to mount him. Alexander loved this horse. He named a a city after him. And for 16 years, Alexander the Great and Buspalus would go into battle. Now, you must understand that Alexander and his men traveled, I think it was something like 5,000 miles a year. They conquered and conquered. Alexander's men loved to go into battle because they never lost a battle. Alexander the Great would always charge into the to the enemy before ahead of his all of his other men. He was always a few yards ahead of them. Of course, Buspalus was carrying him. And they went into India where they had to fight against these huge elephants. And the the men in India would ride on the tops of these elephants in a cage and they would shoot at the men below them. The elephants knew how to grab a man off of a horse with its trunk and throw him to the ground and kill him. I mean, they were into some very serious battle battles. Buspalus was always an excellent horse. He was just, he saved Alexander's life uh, numerous times. One time when they were in India, in, in the country of India, they charged into the battle. Of course, Alexander went in first. And then they had to regroup and make another attack. And Alexander spurred Buspalus forward again. And he urged him into the battle. And Buspalus, for the first time, refused to obey Alexander the Great. 
And Alexander became angry and whipped him, but the horse did not obey. He whipped around. He ran back through the ranks of Alexander the Great's uh, men, and he knelt down as he had been trained to do. I get emotional over this story. And he let Alexander off, and then he rolled over dead. What had happened is in the first charge, he had been mortally wounded. And his last act of devotion to his master was to drop him off in a place of safety where he would be protected. You know, in the book of Zechariah, God says in chapter Zechariah chapter 10, verse 3, he says, I have visited the house of Judah, the flock of Judah, and made them, made my people Judah as the goodly horse in the battle. God equates his people to a horse that he rides into battle as the captain of their salvation. God, in a certain sense, brothers and sisters, and in a very full sense, is dependent upon our cooperation with him in the great controversy, and he needs our cooperation. If a horse will die for its master, should we not be able, willing to die for the king of the universe who has died for us? And to stand in these last days for the vindication of his name? Yeah, absolutely. Amen. May God help us to be faithful in these last days and to follow the Lord as never before. I would urge you with this thought as I wrap it up. I don't really want to talk anymore. I think I've said enough. But we are told that the message for this time, the message for this time is that by beholding we are changed. As we draw light from heaven through this holy book, We will have a perspective on God, on Christ, on the great controversy. We will have an understanding that the world does not have. And this this understanding will prepare us and enable us to stand faithful in these last days. I would urge you to study these prophecies, the great controversy, the patriarchs and prophets, the desire of ages, other books, and get into the subject of Adventism because God has given us the bread of life for a perishing world in these last days. But the Lord is looking for a Christ-like people. We cannot go on living like the world, eating like the world, dressing like the world, following entertainment like the world, and expect that we will have a Christ-like character. It will never happen. We must leave off the things of the world. We must separate from the things of the world, from sin. We must put away all unnecessary things from our life and be totally focused on Christ and on the vindication of his character. And we are told that as we draw near to the end of time, we either rapidly advance in our Christian experience or we rapidly retrograde back towards the world. And I believe now is a time when God wants to pour a blessing upon his people and enable us to get ready for what's coming and to stand faithful in the battle. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming. Well, specifically, we do have a lot of light. And uh, believe you me, brothers and sisters, when Jacob was going through the incidents in his life, he didn't see the future that God would finally bring out. God took the family of Jacob, which was a mess, and redeemed those boys. Often you will read in Scripture where God says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God wants to add your name to that list. I'm the God of Dan. I'm the God of Peter. I'm the God of Glenn. God wants to add your name to that list. And may we cooperate with heaven's plan in these last days. God bless you.
And let's keep praying. Let's keep pressing on. May the Lord give us victory. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. And um, I would make an appeal today, if there's anybody here that's a backslider or separated from the Lord or not following him all the way, please do not put off reconsecrating to the Lord Jesus Christ and stay with him. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the story of the redeeming power of Christ and the lives of Jacob's 12 sons. We know, Lord, that this is a prototype of the accomplishment of your grace that will be gained in these last days in 144,000 and those who are martyred. We know, Lord, that you have power to redeem us from sin, from Satan, from self, and from the awfulness of eternal death. I pray to Lord earnestly that there will be a revival in each one of our hearts, that there may be a revival in this church, that there may be a revival in Ohio, that there will be great victories gained in the battles of the Lord, that souls on the side of Satan will be transferred to the side of Christ through our testimony and through our lives and through our witness. Lord Jesus, help us to see the value of eternal things as never before. Bless everyone who is here. And if anyone is here struggling, I pray that that will especially help them to hold on to the cross of Christ and plead with thee in my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Thank you for your love and thy redeeming power. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.